Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is Bart Sechelle. Most recently, Bart was the CMO of Bed Bath & Beyond. Before that, he was at Burlington Stores. He was also a partner at McKinsey & Company, where he was a leader in their marketing practice. He has an unbelievable amount of experience in the world of marketing, especially in retail. And I wanted to start off the conversation on the topic that is the elephant in every marketer's room, AI, and what it means in the world of retail. We had a really, really fascinating conversation about that and a whole host of other topics, including the fact that Bart sits on the board of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and it is a highly personal story. Here's my conversation with Bart Sechel. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. It's it's really a pleasure a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we're doing this. Absolutely. It's, it's long overdue. Okay. The question I normally ask... CMOs, former CMOs, people are I normally ask this question to start off because I'm just fascinated by this. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? <laughs> oh, I love the question because it's so often, you know, misused. Right. And you tend to find people that the people that conflate them really aren't attuned or aware to kind of what they're doing. And, and this is, you know the people that get that get that mixed up are the ones that say hey we better just cut this expense line right without actually thinking about what does that mean or who who is that or what does it do so in my mind marketing is about the brand and what the brand stands for and who the customer is and how you relate with that customer uh, advertising is one of the the tools that a marketer will use to reach an audience and advertising is the message and how you communicate that and where you communicate that. And so they really are different. And there is an advertising industry. To some extent, there's a marketing industry. There are at least there are groups of people that are marketers, but they're different but related. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's fascinating the answers I get to this question from, from different people. Because there is no, there's no obviously one standard answer, right? Yeah. Okay, I want to shift gears or shift a little into what I call, this is the elephant in every marketer's room right now, and it's AI. I'm going to just read off a couple stats, and it's there's so many stats, right? I just saw this. The global AI market will reach a size of a half a trillion dollars this year. Moreover, eight in 10 companies consider using AI in their strategy to be a high priority. Which, okay, that could be misconstrued to go, they consider a high priority, but what are they really doing? Now, you have a wealth of experience in retail between Burlington and Bed Bath & Beyond. Plus, you were on the advisory board for Foreman Mills. So I want to start the AI question with you regarding, in in the context of retail, what's going on with AI in retail? Where do you see it going? Are there limitations? You know, if I just say AI retail, like word association, what comes to mind? Yeah, you know, it's so it's such a complicated and important question right now. And I've actually spent a lot of time 
thinking about this and, and acting on it, we've implemented some of the things that you can do with AI. Let me, let me jump in and uh, I'm just going to, you know, completely ignore your, your, your question around free association. I'm just going to jump in on an aspect of this that I find fascinating. So all the way back in the seventies, when banks started introducing ATMs, there was a world of discussion, debate, uh, uh, people yelling and screaming about how ATMs were going to put bank tellers out of business, that this was it. The world was done. The world was changing. And we were going to see, you know, the end of the way banking happened. And, and it was all going to be this new thing. And what happened, as we know, with our hindsight, is that ATMs became ubiquitous. They were everywhere. But it didn't take away from the way people interacted with traditional banking. That happened much later for different reasons, and, and you've still got fallout happening in, in the banking sector. The outgrowth was that consumers interacted more with their banks, and they had more transactions, not fewer, and they had just as many transactions in a bank branch with a live person, and then they had all these additional transactions that happened through the ATM machines. And it allowed banks, this gets back to the marketing component, banks that were quick to adopt this were leaders. It affected their brand. In fact, if you go all the way back and you look at you know, the money center banks coming out of that time into the 80s, you know, Citibank became the technology-oriented bank. They were ahead of everyone else. A lot of the other banks lagged, and it gave Citi an, an edge. They, they may not have kept that over, over the decades since, but it really was a positioning that that changed the way people saw that brand. And so as we think about technologies and what impact they're going to have, I find that you go through a hype cycle where everyone believes uh, everything. They read into each technology. This is going to change everything. Everything's going to be different. It's going to, and, and the big discussion we have about these and the reason it's become a political topic and that it's become such a, a strong discussion uh, as a labor topic mm -hmm. is that people think, oh, everyone's going to lose their jobs because of AI. AI is going to affect some jobs. It's certainly going to affect the way we work. It's certainly going to affect the way that we, we interact. And it's certainly going to affect our productivity. But I don't know that every marketer and every white collar worker broadly is going to lose their job mm. because of generative AI. I do think that it's going to really improve productivity. I do think there are some types of jobs that may go away or you may need a lot fewer people doing them. But I think it's also going to open up a whole range of other knowledge workers, even within marketing, mm -hmm. that are developing the programs that you're using AI to deploy against. And so AI is very real. There's too much hype. It's not, as, it's not going to do what people think it's going to do, but it's really going to enhance especially productivity. So, And you can, we can break down kind of the places it's, it's going to end up working. If that's if that's something that you think your audience would be interested in, yeah, I'm I'm because of your retail experience, I'm really interested what you envision for in store even right when yeah. it comes to AI. Well, a AI assistance in stores probably will happen. It'll probably be something like where do I find something? Although we have that today, and it's not necessarily AI powered, but there's there's a number of retailers do a really nice job with an app that will let you go on your you know go on your phone through your app and ask what aisle will I find this in? 
uh, Home Depot, for instance, does yep. a really nice job with this. A, a number of retailers are doing this well. The the AI component for in store, probably less than in other places. Maybe you get self checkout working better, mm. uh, but I don't know if that's generative AI versus just better development of the algorithms they right. use to identify the product they're checking out. So today, consumers really don't love self checkout. They use it, but you know, invariably, we've all had that experience. Something goes wrong. And so your customer experience that could be really smooth and easy and convenient kind of gets taken away. Amazon continues to experiment with the, if you touch it, you remove it from the shelf, you put it in your cart, and they're ready to bill you without you having to even go through a checkout line. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a place that AI may continue to improve and help enhance. And again, you may call that AI, you may just call that you, you may call that better algorithms for detecting, you know, what motion, what motion means I put it in my cart and what motion means I looked at it and put it back. Right. But I, I think the places you're going to see in marketing and in retail and in retail marketing uh, are going to be things like improving the productivity of our creative teams. So a creative team today comes up with their ideas, they execute the ideas, you choose one, they finalize it, you put it into production, you push it out to consumers. And I think that the notion, and, and there's a lot of fear out there. In fact, I had a team member spend more time responding to me why deploying an AI tool to help improve copywriting was a bad idea than they mm. did testing it. So the task was go test this, try this out, tell us how it works. And and I got back, it's a copywriter, they're a good writer. I got back a, a long written explanation for why this would not be a good path to go down. In fact, the tools help, the tools are good. The tools come up with, and maybe they'll improve over time, they come up with some things that are dopey. And just human judgment says, don't do this, don't deploy something that's gonna, you know, that's gonna hurt your brand. But they certainly can help generate ideas that a human can then use and make something better out of. They certainly, once you're ready to execute, can help and make your execution faster. Now, will AI do it all without a human? Maybe. I don't know if that's the direction we want to go in. I think the better direction is to have AI enhance the way we work and help make us work better. Now, the one place that I see AI working really well already because a lot of these other things are nascent, they're coming along, they're developing, is around customer care. And in retail, this is really important, uh, especially if I'm operating online retail, you get a lot of customers calling. They call a phone number and say, where's my package? Or something's not working, or I got the wrong thing. Or right, There's all, all sorts of reasons they're going to call you. In fact, we know a lot about the reasons they're going to call, right? because we track all that very closely. And Gen AI is really, really good especially on chat, a little bit with voice. The voice sometimes gets clunky or, or confusing or, or feels peculiar or odd to the consumer and can turn them off. But on chat, it works really well. And again, it can work really well on its own, especially if you're transparent with the customer. Hey, I, hi, I'm a helpful bot. Let me answer your question. Because most questions that consumers have when they call a retailer are the same questions. Where's my package? When's it going to arrive? I got the wrong thing, right? These over and over and over. It's the same stuff. As a retailer, we know how to answer these, 
right? I can tell you where your package is and when it's going to arrive. I can tell you why you got three and not two. I can tell you how to return it. I, right? I can do all those things and I can do them really quickly and easily with a live person or in a chat. And that chat can be powered with generative AI and I can answer a lot of the basic questions and then I can reserve my human workforce to answer the tough questions or the things that need escalation. We didn't, we didn't get it right. We did something wrong. How do we help that customer? That requires a human touch. It really does if you and, want to keep and, that customer. And always will. And right. always will. And that's important to add. And I'm not putting words in your mouth, but clearly you agree. Yeah. A few minutes ago, you mentioned a topic that is absolutely near and dear to my heart. I know it's near and dear to your heart. It should be at every marketer's heart. And that's customer experience. Again, like AI and like everything else in marketing, I can trot out a million stats from Sunday. And I just want to share two with you and then, and then ask you about them. So to, CX, I always look at it in two ways. I look at what do consumers say and what do marketers say. So the first set is 81%, 8 in 10 customers say a positive experience increases the chances of making another purchase. And I go, of course it does. But then I see, but only 6 in 10 leaders say customer experience. Uh, customer service or experience has a positive impact. And then I, uh, then I see Forrester last year said or showed that CX quality fell almost 20% last year, which was the lowest in over 15 years. So, so help, help me understand, right? To go on one hand, because we're all consumers, right? Which I know marketers forget sometimes. I want the best experience. The marketer in me goes, and I know how valuable that experience is, but so why is there still a disconnect in 2023 between what consumers want and what brands deliver when it comes to customer experience? All right, here, here's the answer. The answer is you are so correct with these stats. And what you're not saying in those stats is which companies are winners and which companies are losers. And like, this is, it, it's like the magic secret sauce. You guys want to know the secret sauce? The secret sauce is listen to your customer. It's, it's so simple. It is. And so the reason you see declining experience scores is because companies have walked away from taking care of their customers. Guess what happens to those companies? They get really hurt over <laughs> those following periods. Yep. It takes, it can take years to recover and to get better at that. And so this is kind of, this is like this phenomenal like thing that like it's so simple to understand. And all you have to do is pay attention to the customer, manage that experience. And experience is more than just customer care. We sometimes lump things together, especially when there are software tools that are sold within label customer experience. And what they're really measuring is, is customer care. And, and the experience actually means everything about that experience. It means all the ways that you engage with the brand. It can be in store, it can be online, it can be on the phone, it can be with a specific mission in mind, all of those pieced together to what that total experience looks like. And companies that care about it and pay attention get all the benefits that you're describing in terms of how much more revenue and what repeat purchase and all those things. And you can quantify this, right? So if you're looking at, hey, should I invest in in rethinking the way, the way my, my checkout flows to improve the experience for the customer? You can quantify this. It matters. And you can put numbers against it and say, yeah, here's how much it matters. Here's how much lift we're going to get if we do this right. And therefore, that's why we should we should be investing and making this work. People can't see me, but I'm nodding my head <laughs> like a bobblehead going. It's so simple. 
I love, by the way, when I see research that, that asks marketers what they think consumers want in experience. I don't care what you think as a marketer. <laughs> like, I don't care. Yeah. Ask them. <laughs> I, I, I just love those, those researches. But anyway, that's a pet peeve of mine. I want to move on. I want to go back to AI for a second. But in the context of emotion, right? And, you know, one of the inherent, I guess, risks, if you will, with a tool like AI, and I do think it is a tool, is that it's devoid of emotion, right? And it is for all intents and purposes, right? Where I'm working now is a company called System One, and we're a creative effect in this platform. And everything we do, and we test everything, and it's all rooted in emotion, okay? We have these seven basic fundamental emotions, happiness, surprise, disgust, anger, whatever, right? From a CMO's role, right? Not necessarily from an AI perspective, but just in general, when you're going to create an ad, print, out of home, broadcast, I don't care, do you factor in, is this going to elicit emotion, right? Because the worst thing is, and, and we test this as well, and we tell people, tell brains all the time, you'd rather have someone anger, angry at an ad versus apathetic. Because when you get apathy, you're done in my eyes, right? Because then you're just, I don't care. So I'm curious to hear in your experience when you're going to create an ad, or even if you look at it as a, as a consumer and, it, and if it evokes emotions, like what comes to mind when I say that in the, in the world of advertising? Yeah. So I have a slightly different view than, and we should talk about anger because I, I actually disagree with that, but mm-hmm. I have a slightly different view than a lot of people have around this. It's that most advertising falls within, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing on the screen, so let me describe what I'm drawing. There's like a, there's a bell curve. Mm-hmm. for advertising. Most advertising falls in the middle. It really does. You have to do, if you do advertising, you're gonna, your, ad, your ad will perform about like everyone else's if you do roughly what everyone else does. And typically that's got a little bit of emotion, right? But it, it's not Nike, just do it. It's not these f- phenomenal campaigns that you know we can all point to that are just so good. So most advertising falls in the middle of that curve. And if you do that, you're going to be okay. Any agency you hire is going to give you something that's going to fall in the middle of the curve. If you don't do anything that improves on that, you want to avoid being on the wrong side of the curve. And I think that anger can do that as can just like, like things that are dopey enough that like consumers notice them and they're like, Ooh, like, like that's really not for me. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to make an ad that gets someone to stop buying. Right. It's just, it's, it's, that's really hard. You can do it, but you have to like appeal to kind of like really polarizing things. Right. But, and so for the most part, ads all fall in the middle of this curve. Now to get above that, that's where all these positive emotions come and that they can really get the engagement with your brand to improve. And that comes from, you know, as small a thing as getting someone to smile or laugh at your ad, Yeah. but still know who you are. There's, it, there's so many, uh, and I'm thinking mostly about, video. And so it's funny, you, we're, we, we all fall into this pattern. You said broadcast. I don't know if there's any such thing as a broadcast ad anymore. You're making mm. a video ad. You're not making a broadcast ad, right? Because it's going to get, it's going to end up deployed in streaming and it's going to end up deployed in, in short, in a whole bunch of other tactics that don't look like broadcast, but they're all really, it's video distribution it's video, yeah. of, yeah, good of, point. of sa- sound and motion. And so where you can engage an audience and get them to like what you're doing and know who's doing it, because there's so many ads out there that, 
oh, that's really funny. Well, who was that ad for? Exactly. I don't know. It was really funny. Well, you engaged, but you didn't tie it together with your brand. So your message has to be authentic for the brand. And that authentic authenticity matters maybe more than anything else you do, because what you do find is that your award-winning agency is focused on, you know, <laughs> getting their next award. Yeah, right. And they may not be focused on what's really going to break through with the customer. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, I need that warmth, but I've also got to tie it to what's what's meaningful and and connected to what my brand stands for. But I think those emotions, especially around kind of warmth and caring, it has such a big impact. You know, it's interesting because, you know, at, at System One, we have three metrics that we look at. It's long-term, short-term, but then we have something called fluency, which means, okay, the ad may do really good or move the needle short-term or long-term, but if, if no one knows who the brand is and yeah. recognizable, Right. And, and so we track that. That's how, that's how important to your point is about, yeah, that laugh made me, I mean, that ad made me laugh, but who is it for? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so important. It's in, in retail, we often use another metric that, you know, you, you guys probably track as well, which is intent to shop. And the way that I knew my ad was working especially if I had a chance to pre-test it. But even if I didn't, I was running it and I wanted to know, do I need to change this? How's this campaign running? It's intent to shop. By far the most important thing you can measure, which mm-hmm. which is interesting because a lot of times ad testing, and, and there's a number of companies do this really well, ad testing focuses on all these other components, but doesn't look at, you know, are you going to shop? Really good point. Okay, I have to pick your brain on what it's like to be a CMO. And, you know, I'm the CMO whisperer and I've coached, counseled, advised hundreds and hundreds of CMOs. And I get these questions a lot. And I'm going to start with the one that I get probably the most. Why does the CMO, on average, have the shortest tenure in the C-suite? Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) first of all, (laughs) I'm not convinced that metric is is real. Okay. I've seen it. I've measured it. I've read it. And I've, I've seen every couple of years, someone does another study and comes out and, and, and the big headline is CMO tenure is extended from 1.7 months to 1.8 months. So I, I, I do think that there's, uh, that there's some short lifespan in there for um, some CMOs, but I think it's largely a function, not of what people think it is. So what people think and, and there's going to be some element to truth is what people think is, well, advertising and marketing get, and there I, I went conflating the two, by the way, marketing and a CMO get held accountable for poor business results that aren't always within their control. And therefore they're the person Yeah, we need to change, get rid of the CMO, bring a new CMO in, and, and there you go. I, I think there's probably some truth to that, but more myth than truth. I think more likely the reason that CMO tenures are short is that, and now I'm going to come back to the advertising marketing piece. It's that CEOs don't have a crystal clear understanding of what a marketer does, should do, can do Mm. for the business. And when they don't have that, they go out and look for something and hire someone that's the wrong CMO for their business. There are a lot of types of CMOs. There are quantitative CMOs. There are brand-driven creative CMOs. There are, 
you know, AI driven CMO, right? There, there's a lot of different flavors and a lot of different backgrounds and experiences. And the person that you hire matters a lot. It's not just a CMO, it's a person. It's, it's someone that's going to fill this role and be part of your executive team. And if you think, oh, this is all about getting, you know, it's all about getting the, the creative right. That's what I need in my marketer. And you hire someone that does that well. And there are people that do that really well. But what you really need is someone who's going to build your database and manage your digital programs. Well, it's typically not the same person. Right. Sometimes it is. And, and there are marketers out there that do both. I, I do both, right? But if you hire the wrong CMO, within a year or two, it's not working. It's really clear it's not working. And the CEO makes a change and they bring in someone else. And so I think helping CEOs better understand what the marketing function does and can do for them, I think that your tenures go up. I, I could not agree more. And I'll take it a step further to say, educate CEOs on what a CMO can do, but then, and also then juxtapose it over what their individual needs. And when I say their, the company's needs are. To back to your original point about there are different types of CMOs. And I definitely think that contributes to this, you know, the sky is falling CMO tenure, which everybody just lumps all together. You got to dig beneath the surface to find out why. And I, I could not agree more. You know, the other thing is marketers, you know, <laughs> marketers do for yourself. So, you know, it's good to ask questions. If you're going to get hired to go lead marketing for an organization, ask the right questions coming in and don't take the job if they're looking for someone that's not you. Tell them, yep. you know, you're looking for someone different. What yeah. you need is someone that's going to be this kind of person. And let me introduce you. Here's three people that can do that because we all know each other. We all know who can do which types of things. And so I, I think it's a dialogue more than just, hey, let's 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 lay this all on the CEOs for not making good hiring. So it's about it's about that interface. It's also about so a lot of CMO roles, not all, but a lot of them get filled through through the big recruiters, the yep. big retained recruiters. Yep. The retained recruiters, some of them do a better job than others building out their their CMO practices. And they have people that really understand that there are different flavors of marketers out there and help the company find the right person. Others less so. And sometimes companies go and find, you know, find someone on their own. And that's where I think you get more of these mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. So one last thing on the, on the role of the CMO, talk a little bit about your relationship when you were CMO and your relationship with the others in the C-suite. So this is, this is such an important topic. I actually include this as a whole module in the, I teach a class at NYU, a graduate class called Marketing in the C-Suite. And we actually tackle this in, in some depth. If you're arm's length and like are battling with other parts of the C-Suite, you're not going to be successful as a marketer. The, the days of like marketing goes off in its corner and does its thing are over. Marketing is so tightly integrated with everywhere in the building, especially in retail, but I think in, in every industry, right? In retail, you've got to be really tight with your merchants. You've got to understand what product are they buying? Where are they headed? Where, where are we taking you know, the, the, the product that uh, consumers are going to buy? The stores team matters. What's the experience in the store? If you're the marketer, whether it's explicitly part of your responsibility or just implicitly part of your responsibility, it matters. And you've got to be tight with that group. 
IT, you've probably seen this stat. Uh, we've all seen versions of this stat. Marketing uh, spends more on uh, IT than IT does. Yep. And sometimes IT does it, and sometimes marketing like that. Where where that budget actually sits, but like marketing is is usually the biggest technology spend in most companies these days, depending on how you classify and sort things like your data warehouse, et cetera. And that being the case, right, you've got to have a great partnership with your IT team. Uh, I've seen settings. And uh, when you introduced me, you mentioned I'd been a consultant before I was a CMO. And I spend a lot of time with marketers in a lot of different organizations. And I have seen battles between the technology team and the marketing team. And I've seen great relationships. And boy, do you want a good relationship. If you're in a battle and you're like, well, my IT team can't deliver, I'm going to build it myself. It ends up a disaster because you end up with unsupported applications and they don't link and you can't log in and you can't move the data and you've got data security issues because you've done something wacky. Like, just don't do that. Make it part of of the core infrastructure. And so that requires a really tight partnership. And then I, I have to talk about finance. There is a... Here's another myth to bust. There's a myth out there that finance and marketing are you know, oil and water and, and opposites and they don't work well together. And I want to tell you, it's it's not true. And if, if you have a bad relationship, you have a problem mm. and it's going to hurt the business. It is so important that marketers recognize that finance is not the enemy. They're not out to get them. This whole notion of marketers just want more budget. Well, you got to drop it. If you're a marketer and you're focused on budget and you want more budget, you have to you have to drop it. You can't be that marketer. You have to work with your finance team really tightly to project the business. The finance team's not out to get you. They don't want to cut your money because they want to hurt all the plans you have. They're trying to manage the business. And the better you and your CFO work together, understand what the lever of marketing does and doesn't do for the business and where adding spend or taking spend away is going to help the business or manage the flow of the business. That's really important. If you're short inventory in a period, pull the marketing back. Don't be the marketer that says, well, we spent this much last year. We have to spend this much again. No, don't do that. Spend the right amount right. for the business. Exactly. And and so that's where that tight partnership between finance and marketing matters. So just as a marketer, you have to work with every other part of the C-suite. You have to work with HR. You have to work with IT. You have to work with finance. You have to work with operations. You have to work with, you have to work everywhere. Yeah. Let me, let's take a holistic 30,000 foot view here of your career. If I ask you who's had the biggest impact and why? Oh, wow. You know, I've had so many mentors and, and I can I can talk about a couple, but I've had so many mentors that I feel very lucky to have had folks looking out for me. And I do want to encourage folks that are early in their career to look for and seek out people that can help mentor them and teach them. So I've had early in my career, I worked in financial service marketing, and uh, it was a time when financial services was bringing in people from packaged goods. And so I ended up with two mentors that had come out of one from uh, Nabisco, one from P&G that knew everything about marketing. They were, they were VP level and I was, you know, a new, new associate and I learned so much, so much from them about kind of core 
marketing discipline. And so I look back and at, you know, it's formation. Yeah, that was probably really important. When I was at McKinsey, I had mentors that just looked out for me and helped me really learn what matters to, to making businesses successful and how does marketing play a role in that? I've had mentors that were clients who wow. I became friends with, who I learned so much from. So when I think about like what, where my influences are and who I've learned from, it's, it's many and varied. And I encourage, I encourage our, our listeners, especially those earlier in their careers, to cultivate those, those relationships because they will last you for, they will last you for decades. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm still in touch all the time with folks that I worked with 20 years ago. And the opposite is equally true. Even when you're earlier in your career, and especially as you're later in your career, look out for other folks, look out for your team. There's a phrase that I like, which is always leave your team better than you found them, right? And this comes out of consulting, but it applies everywhere. Look for your team, develop your team. By far, the best talent you're gonna have is talent that you've helped develop, that you've helped train up, and that you've taught how to, how to look at the world. And you can see people move from being very focused on their task to thinking more broadly about the business to thinking even more broadly about the business. And that development of that development, it's, it's very consistent in how you, how you can develop people. You can move people as fast as is right for them and help them be successful and it will make you successful. I know uh, when I was researching you, other than, you know, the marketing side, I discovered something that I did not know about you, that you are on the board of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I know it's deeply personal as to why, and I know it started, I think it does, you tell us when it started when you were at Burlington, but talk a little bit of how that came about and why it's so deeply personal. Well, so like many of us, my family's been touched by cancer. My son is a cancer survivor. My brother and father both died from blood cancers. Cancer sucks. And anything I can do to help end cancer, I'm all in for. And so I've supported Leukemia and Lymphoma Society before I, I became a board member there. I joined their board when I was at Burlington. Burlington already had a program with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, helping raise money. And I helped expand that and, and build on that. It's worth actually talking about this for a minute. I'll, I'll tie this back to marketing, right? We're learning, we're learning about me as, as kind of what my journey's been. But one of the things that I find as a marketer is that when you as a company do good, it, it helps your brand mm. in a very, very meaningful way. So when customers look at your look at you and say, "Hey, this is a company that cares about the communities that they operate in and the communities where their employees live, and that they're a caring company," that carries an enormous amount of weight for how cons for, for as a component of what makes up your brand. Mm -hmm. It's a really important component. It's an intangible, right? It's very hard to kind of quantify or put your finger on, but it matters a lot. And so, I encourage you wherever you're working to think about. What are the things that can tie in to, to our brand where we can do good in the community? And, and it may be, hey, if you, if you want to support the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I'm all for it. And you just reach out to me and I'll, I'll connect you and we'll, we'll figure out how you can directly contribute to what I think of as a great cause. But there are a lot of great causes out there. And I encourage you to be community minded as a marketing leader because it will not only be a good thing for you as a company, it's a good thing for you as a brand and your employees 
Mm. will feel so much better about where they work because they work for a company that cares. It will help in retention of those employees. It'll help people feel good about their work. They'll be more productive. It just across the board, it's a really good thing. And so I encourage everyone to look for ways to get their company involved in causes that they care about or that they care about and fit with, most importantly, fit with that brand that they're working with and and can help enhance it. I love it. I love it. So the way I wrap up each episode is I reference something that I know people can't see, but the interviewee can see, and that's the album wall behind me. (laughs) Um, Right. And I always have to paint the picture. I'm a very eclectic music fan. I don't know how many albums you can see, but everything from the temptations to Bruce Springsteen to the village people. So I'm a very big, big music fan. And my favorite song of all time is a song called lean on me by bill withers. And yes, it shows my age. It's from the seventies. Right. But the lyrics have always resonated with me. I'm going to put you on the spot here, but is there one song or a lyric? If I just go, Bart, what comes to mind in terms of your life, your career, your kid, whatever the case may be, is there a song, I guess, or a lyric that kind of resonates the most with you? So I'm like you, I have a pretty eclectic music taste. I like a lot of things. I listen to a lot of things. And and I will, at the risk of dating myself also, I'll, I'll share, share a lyric just because, and, and it's, t- I don't know that it's the most important lyric to me, but it's, an, it's, it's a good lyric, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll share it. Actually written by Nick Lowe, but made famous by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. It's, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Mm. Mm, that's a mic drop there on that one for sure. The other one, the other thing that I bring up since, you know, I'm such an audiophile and, and listening to music and I had this thought about the, the phrase, the sound of marketing. And I, and I pose this question, I go, what does marketing sound like to you? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. So, you know, that, that, that taking a, a song that you love and trying to incorporate it into your brand becomes very expensive when you start to license it and, and, and pay for it. So th- there, there is some complexity in kind of what sound your, your brand should, should have if mm-hmm. it's a specific piece of music. But sound matters a lot. Uh, in retail, we get to actually execute this directly whether it's through, uh, and it's been renamed a couple times, but now, now like Mood Music or Spectre or one of these partners that will allow you to pick playlists and play them in your stores. And we do that. And those playlists actually are, are an important part of what, you know, what, what your brand is, right? You can go all the way one way or another way. You can be modern. You can, be, you can play you know, a lot of different genres of music or you can mix them. And, and that matters for kind of shaping how the consumer shopping experience manifests itself. And so, you know, marketers really do pay attention to that. But what's the sound of marketing? The sound of marketing is, is it's really the sounds of, oh, this is going to sound, this might sound trite but, or, or deep, I don't know which, but it's, it's the sounds of life. It's the sounds of your consumer living is really the sound of marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, last thing. What's the next step in the Bart Sechelle journey? <laughs> what do you want people to know? You know, what are you looking to do? What, the floor is yours. What do you want? What do you want to say? So 
Still sorting that out. So just wrapped up at Bed Bath & Beyond literally a few weeks ago. So next, maybe an operating role. If someone out there listening needs a uh, needs a killer marketer, you let me know. Maybe more board roles. I serve on a, on a few boards now and might be open to doing more of that. Already picked up some consulting assignments. And so in this interim phase, happy to do consulting work. And then maybe there's a startup or two in my future. I don't know. We'll see. Well, listen, this has been such an engaging and very insightful conversation. Hopefully, and I, I don't see how they couldn't, anyone listening to it will come out of this much smarter because of what you shared on our on our call today. Thank you so much for being my guest. And Steve, thank you for having me on. It's really been my pleasure. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 